I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Well, a very good evening to you. Welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Dr. Chris, and with Dr. Katz. Hello! We're here this evening, and under the microscope, the science of insects. Not so much the birds and the bees as the fleas and the bees. Here to help us talk about the science of insects, we have from Insect Research and Development uh, outside Cambridge, Ian Burgess. Good evening, Ian. Good evening, Chris. We have food columnist for the Sunday Telegraph, writer and historian B. Wilson. No pun intended, that's her real name. Good evening, B. Yes, it is. Hi, thank you. She's going to be talking about her book, uh, The Hive, which is all about bees, not surprisingly. So... Be warned, she's coming up shortly. And also coming up uh, is William Foster from the Zoology Department at Cambridge University. Good evening, William. <laughs> Thank you for popping in. Uh, so you're, and his expertise is all about how social insects like ants and bees work together and form colonies. So if you want to know anything about that, get phoning in now, 08459 25 2000, or you can send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com, for anything to do with insects. Ian's expertise is in insects like mosquitoes that spread diseases, bed bugs, fleas, lice. What sorts of diseases because they spread? How do you know if you've got bed bugs and house dust mites and horrible things in your bed? Get calling now, 08459 And shortly, we'll also be speaking live from California to Megan Fredrickson, who has got an interesting story to tell about how insects are doing some pretty strange things in the Amazon rainforest. Also coming up, some top science news stories, and here's Kat with a rundown. Yep, this evening we're going to be talking about how insects may be able to help cure a bad back in the future, and apparently the secret is nature's elastic bands. And that doesn't mean, like, pinging bees and things across the room, though I'd like to see that. I'm also going to be talking about sniffer wasps. You've heard of sniffer dogs, now we'll be having sniffer wasps. So stay tuned to find out about those. And also stay tuned for our quiz, to play our quiz Science Fact, Science Fiction. In the prize bucket tonight, we have the entire Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD. That's brilliant. It doesn't mean it takes up your bookshelves, it's a DVD. It's worth 100 quid. Uh, we've also got a build-your-own ant farm, donated by the wonderful Anne at sciencesleuth.co.uk. So you can get your own ant farm, get your own insect action going on. And we also have a copy here of Bee's book on bees. So uh, get phoning in now, 08459 25 to play Science Fact, Science Fiction, and Chris will tell us how it works. It's really simple. We give you three easy science facts, and you have to tell us whether you think they're true or false. And tonight's top score goes into the hat, and you could walk away with one of our three prizes. So call now, 08459 25 to take part. We're also taking any science questions on anything. We'll have a stab at them. Call us now, 08459 The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. 
We've got an email here from Maz Bawani, and uh, she's in Peterborough, and she says that she's recently started listening to the show. She thinks it's brilliant, and she thought she'd write in to settle an argument between her and her gran, who uh, claims that talking to plants makes them grow better, and she wants to know, is this true? And so we've had a little look around, a dig around in the Naked Scientist files. Prince Charles talks to his plants, doesn't he? Apparently so, yes. I can't imagine the plants really love that that much. Um, so in 1948, apparently Dr Gustav Fechner thought that plants indeed had emotions, and so talking to them would, would help you, you know, get in touch with your plants and help them to grow. And also studies showed that music might help plants. And classical music. How can music help plants? Well, we'll come on to this in a minute. And that classical music might be good for your plants, and that aggressive, you know, sort of rock or punk music helps your plants to wither away. But apparently. <laughs> it helps them to wither <laughs> But they die happy. They die rocking, I reckon. Um, but apparently, this is not the case. Although they think that um, if you talk to your plants, you'll be giving them more attention and, and probably helping to look after them better. And there is some scientific truth in it. If you got right up close to your plants and talked to them for several hours a day, they'd probably get more carbon dioxide. So we breathe out carbon dioxide from our metabolism, and plants need carbon dioxide for their metabolism. But it would mean probably, you know, really getting up close and being very friendly does with it, your plants all day. Does it make a difference if you've got bad breath? Um, that's not carbon dioxide, Chris. <laughs> and uh, I have to tell you about that later. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. Now, I've got an email from uh, Simon, who's in Tiptree. He sent it this afternoon. He says, uh, hi, Chris. Uh, firstly, a comment on the show. I listen on BBC Essex on Sunday evenings. Brilliant, interesting, informative, well-presented. One of the few programmes to which it's genuinely worth listening. Keep up the good work. Um, checks in the post, Simon. Uh, he says, a bit of a problem. I frequently am, um, am, I'm frequently unable to listen between uh, six and seven, so I often miss the programme. A real pity. Is there a practical solution? Well, yes, there is, because, of course, you can also grab this programme, Simon, from our website. Uh, NakedScientist.com has a podcast, and what that means is that the programme is available digitally on your computer. If you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast, it tells you how you can get the audio from the programme and listen again in your own time, either on your computer or on your MP3 player if you need to. Now, Simon goes on to ask us a couple of interesting questions. He says, uh, firstly, a question about energy conservation. Many years ago, I was told that six-foot fluorescent strip lights are more efficient and need less energy than tungsten lighting to run. By tungsten lighting, he means those normal bulbs that you screw into the ceiling and they have a sort of thin wire inside that glows white hot when you turn them on. He says, is this true? If so, how long do they have to be left on before they lose, use less energy overall? So if you flicked on a light for a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes in a room, would it be better to use the tungsten one or the fluorescent light? That's true. Uh, the way fluorescent lights work is that they contain a gas at a certain low pressure and you fire that gas up by putting a high voltage, a high frequency electrical signal through there and the electricity passing a current through the gas excites the atoms. In fact, we use mercury in strip lights, uh, a form of mercury, and what happens is the atoms become very, very excited and they lose some of their electrons. The electrons get flicked or bombarded up to what's called a higher, higher energy level and then they fall back to a normal energy level and when they do so, they emit some light and they in fact emit a bit of ultraviolet light and that ultraviolet light then strikes what's called a phosphor which is a coating on the inside of the glass tube and that phosphor turns the ultraviolet light rays into a second form of energy which is visible white light and it's very efficient that process so strip lighting is more efficient tungsten bulbs just work by heating up a piece of metal in the tiny filament till it becomes white hot and uh, in fact only about 20% of the energy they use actually turns into anything which is terrifically useful and you'll be interested to know that here in the studio we've got two sets of strip lights and we've got those lovely energy efficient light bulbs as well 
Naked scientists, energy efficient. So we're endorsing uh, using strip lights here because they are they are more efficient in the long run. Oh, in the very short term, yeah, you'd have to leave them on for a little while to actually get the full the full benefit of it. But um, I think I think probably in the long run, in terms of their lifetime, etc., then strip lights are probably better. Is it appropriate that the naked scientists use strip lighting? It's highly appropriate. Here's another question uh, from Simon's Way. He says, fuel for road vehicles. On a garage forecourt recently, both the petrol and diesel pumps carried a notice to the effect that the automatic cutout was not working properly due to the fact we've taken delivery of our winter fuel, but the fuel has been unseasonably, the weather has been unseasonably mild. What's the difference between fuel sold in the winter and, what, and that sold in the summer? Uh, the answer to that is that the garage and the refinery make uh, changes to the mix which is sold on the forecourts between winter and summer because the driving conditions are obviously much different. The starting conditions are particularly different, so engines have to get going from a much colder temperature, which means that what you tend to do in winter is put additives in the fuel which make it vaporise at a lower temperature, which facilitates cold starting. Because if you remember those days a few years ago when you used to get in the car on a cold morning and it was a bit touch and go whether it was going to start or not, especially with diesel engines, those days are gone. An engine tend to be much more reliable and a hell of a lot of that is down to the much better fuel mix and there is definitely a mix uh, a mix change between summer and winter and it's more more volatiles which make the fuel much easier to ignite in winter time than in summertime so i hope that answers your question simon doesn't make it any cheaper though now sniffer wasps what's this all about so um some scientists i think this is absolutely great some scientists in america have been training sniffer wasps to sniff out explosives dead bodies um rotten food all these kind of things and it's absolutely great they've um trained wasps these are small sort of parasitic wasps called microplitis chrysapes oh, my excellent latin there um these are non-stinging parasitic wasps and they live in a little cup called a wasp hound and uh, a wasp hound, or wasp pound. Wasp it says pound, wasp hound yeah. here. Maybe it's a pun. I don't know. Um, anyway, they train their wasps to respond to um, certain smells using a food reward. So, you know, they, uh, they see the smell, smell the smell, do something, and they get a food reward. So you can train your wasps, and apparently you can train one wasp in about five minutes. So that's a possibly a career option for any of you students out there, wasp trainer. Um, and what you do is you put five wasps in your wasp hound detector and attach a camera to it. And when you put your wasp hound near uh, uh, the thing that you want them to smell, so in this case they, uh, they trained this special fungus that lives on rotting corn, they train them to respond to that. You put your detector near it and the wasps will kind of move and the camera can pick that up and sound an alarm and says, no, this is wrong, this is bad, it smells funny. There's a group of researchers in the States that are using bees to flush out landmines. Really? Yeah, so Dr. Bromenshank and his team have worked out that you can train bees to recognise the smell which leaches out of a landmine in the ground. Landmines, 99% of the time, use the explosive TNT, trinitrotoluene, and when it breaks down, it produces the gas nitrogen dioxide, which leaches up from the soil. And obviously, if you're sensitive to that, which you can train bees to be, then they can pick it up because they have incredibly sensitive, uh, obviously, ability to smell. And the way they, in which they do this training is that you put food for the bees in one place and you spike it with a tiny trace of this TNT explosive. And so the bees learn to associate the smell of the explosive with being fed. And then when you re release these bees on an area where there might be mines lurking, they go looking, following this scent, because they think, well, if I go to where the scent is, I'll be fed. And so what you do is they, they have this very clever laser system which scans the whole field, and it can literally pinpoint individual bee positions on the surface of the field. And obviously where bees spend more time is probably where the landmines are. So over time, you build up a profile of the field with hot spots picked up with lots of bees to 
congregate more often than others, and that's li- literally where the landmines are. They use BPS for that. Anyway, they're training these wasps to uh, not only sniff out mouldy, um, mouldy corn, but also to detect explosives using a similar principle and uh, to detect things like dead bodies as well. The, uh, the chemicals they give off are very smelly too. So maybe wasps in the future, maybe we'll see them in airports, who knows. <laughs> I'm here right now in Rendlesham Forest down in Suffolk and I have to say it is pretty eerie. We've got a pine forest here, it's all quite close and I'm hoping we're not going to get unexpected visitors here today. Now I'm just about to approach a clearing where the UFO is alleged to have landed 25 years ago. I was out early in the morning, went out to chop logs and a car pulled up and two young men got out, young 25, 30, something like that. They said red lights had been seen in the forest and they wanted to talk to anyone who had seen them. We've seen craft, um, we've seen the greys, which are ETs, we've seen um, streakers, which are lights going across all over the place, and we've seen orbs of light. We see something nearly every night we come down here and it's just magical. Next week, from the Ministry of Defence, Nick Pope will be here in the studio taking your calls and sightings about UFOs and we've been out to look at what's been going on in the past in Rendlesham Forest because it's 25 years since that amazing night and we've got some of those eyewitness accounts. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. It's been possible this week to track down somebody over in the States who's done really the Jurassic Park equivalent of the virus world to rebuild the flu virus from 1918, which gave rise to the Spanish flu. Jeff Taubenberger has recreated that virus in an attempt to understand a little bit more about how it caused the flu pandemic, how it might be the same thing might be happening today, and what really we can do about it. Pandemic influenza is a very important problem in public health. Influenza pandemics appear suddenly and unexpectedly two or three times every hundred years, and there have been three in the last hundred years. And the, the biggest influenza pandemic in recorded history is the so-called Spanish flu back in 1918. This is important because at least 50 million people were killed by this virus during its circulation in 1918 and early 1919. What's important is that we have now been able to finish sequencing the complete coding sequence or genome of the 1918 virus from tiny fragments of genetic material that were left over in the lung tissues of people who died of the flu back in 1918. Have there been any surprises coming to light as a result of your analysis? I think the most important thing, now that we have the complete set of gene sequences of the 1918 virus in front of us, is that the 1918 virus, we think, is an entirely bird-like virus that adapted to humans. And what makes this surprising is that the last two pandemics that happened in 1957, so-called Asian flu, and in 1968, the Hong Kong flu, they were viruses where you'd had a human-adapted influenza virus that acquired some new genes from a bird virus. But the 1918 virus looks like it was an entirely new virus to humans in 1918 that we think all the gene segments came from a bird. And so this is quite surprising and also adds a lot of concern about the current situation with the H5N1 so-called chicken flu virus in Asia right now. You're saying this, this 1918 strain looks like it jumped straight out of birds and into humans, but how did it actually do that? How did it change in a way that enabled it to then immediately start spreading amongst humans in this devastating way? 
So we're still not sure what happened. But the other thing that we have been doing in trying to understand how this process works is to identify the changes that we would think, based on our data analysis, are the crucial changes that allow a bird-like virus to adapt to humans. We have a very small list of only 10 amino acid changes. And the really surprising thing about this is that the only avian viruses that have any of those changes tend to be some of these recent highly pathogenic H5N1 viruses that have been infecting people and, and killing people. Exactly the type we're seeing at the moment in East Asia. That's correct. And so what we are wondering uh, is if this reflects an example of what we would call parallel evolution, that is, the virus is going down the same path that it did in 1918, leading it to being adapted to humans. So you think we could be approaching the same sort of genetic climax? Yes, we might be looking at the early phases of that. And I think the importance of this work is that it gives us some of these clues. Now, we have to go back and look carefully and experimentally as to try to identify which of these changes are really important for the virus as it switches host. Does this mean then that what we saw in 1957 and again in 1968, they weren't the kind of mega pandemics on the scale of the 1918 because they are a different phenomenon entirely and that what's actually brewing now could actually be the harbinger of 1918 all over again? That's certainly a possibility. The unusual origin of the 1918 virus may certainly be related to its unusual virulence and killing so many people, but we can't actually yet also prove that hypothesis. So, you know, even though we have now got the complete sequence in front of us, we still cannot answer the very fundamental questions yet about why the 1918 virus killed so many people and exactly how the pandemic emerged. But it gives us the tools now to very carefully examine those two questions in experimental models. Hopefully, this will shed light on how pandemics form and the H5 before another pandemic does start. Jeff Taubenberger from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in the US talking to us about what could be happening out there in Asia and also possibly in Eastern Europe today. If you want to ask us a question about uh, the science of avian flu or any other things to do with science, technology and medicine, we're also talking insect science this evening on The Naked Scientist, 08459 252000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Malcolm is in Essex. Hello, Malcolm. Two weeks ago, you were talking about uh, babies and things being born, and Jack was saying that when you're born, out of two cells, they multiply and they grow, and you have thousands of cells that are wasted, and thousands of cells are making you up. Yeah. In that case, then, if I cut off my finger, mm. why doesn't it carry on making cells and give me a finger? Because it gave me a finger when I was a baby. This is a really interesting question and it um, explains basically why we're different between uh, humans and things like amphibians. Because you know if you cut the tail off a newt, newts can grow back their tails and their limbs. And human cells can't do this, mostly. We do have some cells within our bodies, for example in our brain and in certain parts of our skin, that can keep on growing and that's why we can heal small wounds. But with something like a finger, the cells are so complicated, there's so many different types of cells, that um, our, our stem cells aren't capable of making these kinds of cells. They just don't have it left in them to do it. So um, that, that's the reason why we can't regenerate our limbs. We basically don't have the genes and the genetic program to do it. 
But we did once is the kind of argument because we've obviously yeah. come from a, a common ancestor. Exactly. After after your body's grown as a baby, um, all the genes that are responsible for that growth and development are basically shut down and turned off and can't be used again. So uh, maybe if we could find some way of turning them back on, then you could turn cells back into having this kind of stem cell or regenerative property. It's something that people are looking at, but it's certainly a, a very long way in the future. Does that help you, Malcolm? Um, yeah, lovely. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Because up for grabs tonight we have an Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, we also have an anthill making kit, and we also have a copy of Bee's book, The Hive. Lovely. Okay. You ready? Yeah. You can see the, the Great Wall of China from space. Is that science fact or science fiction? That's science fact. No. Um, mathematically, this is actually impossible. Despite the fact that it's very long, the Great Wall of China is only about five metres wide. So even if you had perfect eyesight, you'd struggle to pick it out from um, even up to about 60,000 feet up in the air. That's twice the height of Mount Everest. And uh, this is still way below the altitude at which spacecraft orbit. So, in fact, it's a myth that it's visible from space. Um, and also the Apollo astronaut, Neil Armstrong, said that he couldn't see it from space. So if you ever get that in a pub quiz, you'll know that it's a And he wasn't short-sighted, presumably. I shouldn't think so if he was a pilot and an astronaut. Next question, Malcolm. Boa constrictors can reach up to 30 feet in length. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Fact. Oh, no, no. Um... <laughs> Boa constrictors uh, are South American snakes. They usually reach 12 feet in length and up to 40 pounds, living in hollow logs and mammal burrows, eating possums and bats, which they kill by wrapping their bodies around them and suffocating them before swallowing nice them Nice animals. You are probably thinking about pythons, weren't you, at the time? Uh, mosquitoes flap their ring wings about 600 times a second. Is that science fact or science fiction? I'll go for fiction. Wrong choice, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bad luck. No, that, that kind of... Noise, that's, that's a mosquito doing it 600 times a second. Bad Malcolm, um, at zero out of three, Malcolm. Uh, at the moment, you're in the lead. Uh, I don't know how long for, but it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for calling in. Bye. See you later. Bye. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Let me tell you about this interesting discovery which has come from Australia. A guy called Chris Elvin reckons that they might be on the verge of curing a bad back because what they've done is to copy a gene from a fly which is called resilin. And resilin, as the name suggests, is very resilient. In fact, it's the gene which makes bumblebees' wings flap 500 million times during their lifetime. That's not a, that's not a, <laughs> a tiny undertaking. What this protein is, bumblebees and all other insects with wings and fleas use it to jump, and frog hoppers have actually leapt into the Guinness Book of Records in 2005 using this protein. The way in which this stuff actually works, it's like a giant elastic band. This protein ha is very coiled up in structure, and it can store energy. So when you stretch it, it then pings back into shape very very quickly and it doesn't deform it doesn't it doesn't bend or, or go out of shape when it does it which is how these bees can keep their wings flapping so fast for so long so that's really cool but one of the things about this is that because it's a natural protein they've been able to copy it from these pro from these flies and put it into bacteria and persuade bacteria to make copies of this protein for them 
and then they've ma- managed to make it form in the actual dish into the mature protein. And they've been able to make tiny strands of this stuff, which actually is much better than any other man-made fibre we can currently make that could, that could do this job. And so what they think is that if we can make enough of this stuff, we might have the perfect replacement for vertebral discs. These are the things that sit between each of the bones in your backbone and mop up the, the shocks when you run along or walk or bend and stretch. And since Chris Elvin says, since you move your back about 100 million times in a lifetime, since this stuff can survive being stretched and relaxing about 500 million times, then it should be more than adequate for the job. Cat. That sounds incredibly useful to me. And uh, anyone else there with a bad back? Um, I've got a story here about some Canadian scientists who have been looking at snow fleas. These are tiny little bugs that, that live in the snow. And they found that they have antifreeze in them. So normally, you know, we freeze when we get cold, and that's why humans can't get too cold. But these these fleas live on snow, and they don't freeze. Uh, The researchers found that they have this protein in them, which they call antifreeze protein. Um, And it's very rich in something called glycine. Uh, Glycine's an amino acid, which is one of the building blocks of all the proteins in our body. But it's very rich in it, and it gives it a um, a very high low melting point so it doesn't freeze when it gets really cold and they actually purified this protein by trying to stick the proteins in the flea to ice and um and what they did is they got some ice and they ran all the proteins past it and found the ones that stuck to the ice were these antifreeze proteins so they call that affinity purifying it because it's got an affinity for ice and uh, then they thought about what they could do with this antifreeze protein now they've got it and apparently it could be very useful for um transplanted organs so if you have an organ that's going to be transplanted you have to keep it very cold otherwise if it gets warm then the cells start to break down and the organs no good anymore so you have to keep them at freezing point um but if you could use this sort of protein within the uh, within the organ then you could actually keep it at a colder temperature without damaging the tissue of the organ so maybe this would mean that transplants could survive longer. They also think it might be useful for increasing the resistance to frost in plants and um, for also preserving frozen foods a bit better by pr- helping to preserve the structure of the, the cells in the frozen foods. I was just thinking also uh, organ transplants and all that kind of thing. If you, if you At the moment, uh, we have to find ways to preserve tissue that we want to store for a long time and minimise the chance of it having ice crystals forming mm. and then obviously it gets damaged. If we can find a better way to get things very, very cold so the cells don't get damaged but at the same time... Uh, not actually have to freeze them. That would be really, really helpful. Exactly. The damage happens when ice crystals form in the cell and just burst through it. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat here with you right across the east of England on BBC Local Radio. If you'd like to ask us a question, 08459 or you can send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. We're talking the science of insects this evening. Very shortly we'll be catching up with Ian Burgess from Insect Research and Development in Cambridge about his work on bed bugs and fleas and lice and how they spread coughs and diseases. We'll also be talking to William Foster from the University of Cambridge who works on social insects like bees and also like ants and how they form colonies and how they go out and forage and communicate and follow paths and find their way to food and that kind of thing and also to bill b wilson who's a food writer and historian and has also come up with a book called the hive and uh, she'll be talking about her book tomorrow night in cambridge actually at borders bookstore so if you want to go along and meet b it starts at eight o'clock and it's completely free it's probably appropriate for anyone of pretty much any age, but probably 12 and upwards would, would probably enjoy it the most, and we'll probably lay on a cup of coffee for you as well. So come and join us at 8 o'clock tomorrow to hear B talk there. If you've got a science question for us, 08459 or send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Fancy listening to the Naked Scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, 
or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat, with you until 7 o'clock on the BBC, right across the east of England. If you want to ask us a question about anything to do with science, technology and medicine, 08459 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Uh, I have an interesting question here, which is from Greg McQueen, who's in Denmark. He says, just to let you know, I listen to the podcast version of your show in Denmark. Great show. I always look forward to listening to it on iTunes. In the last show, I heard you talk about snot and its purpose of filtering out dirt and germs from the air. And there was a brief mention of saliva. Although saliva is used to start the process of breaking down food and makes it easier to swallow food, I'm wondering if saliva has any healing properties. Cats lick their wounds, and often people instinctively lick or suck small cuts on the backs of their hands. So does saliva help ger- to keep things germ-free and make them heal up quicker? Uh, keep up the good work. Um, it really looks like you're helping to make science accessible to everyone. Well, thanks for that, Greg. Um, the answer to your question is yes, saliva does have some beneficial properties because it contains a number of, of uh, proteins, and those proteins include antibodies, and we make a lot of antibodies when we have infected with things that can mop up various bugs and viruses so that's one bonus of saliva it also contains another protein called lysozyme and this is an enzyme that can break down certain kinds of bacterial cell walls and so when you lick something that's got certain bacteria on it those lysozymes attack the bacteria and help to neutralize them so that's one other thing and that's also in tears as well you also make antibodies and lysozyme in your tear film and one of the other things in saliva is mucus and mucus um, is a protein which forms a sort of meshwork and it traps things and stops them obviously moving away too fast and it also has a, a lubricating role so you can swallow things more easily but yes saliva does have a sort of medicinal role too Crat uh, <laughs> absolutely intrigued by that um, yeah so what we want to do is get you phoning in with questions that you might have like that about saliva, snot but tonight mainly about insects so we've got uh, talk about bees we've got talk about bed bugs, lice, anything like that and uh, I'm sure you've got loads of questions. I've got loads of questions, certainly. I want to know, what, why do horseflies hurt so much when they sting you? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Ian Burgess is from Research and Development. In well, Kat, the reason they hurt so much is that normally they bite very large animals, things like deer, cattle and things that can't turn around and smack them one. Uh, so it doesn't really matter. They don't have to creep up on you. Uh, so they have really quite large mandibles and chew a big hole in you. Uh, and then they lap the blood as it starts to flow out. Um, and, of course, uh, with a thick-skinned animal like a cow, they do have to chew quite a big hole. And they, they don't adjust for when they're biting on human skin, which is really quite thin. So it hits the nerves rather quicker. <laughs> oh, and is it true that can spiders bite humans, like the spiders we get in the UK? Because I'm sure I've been bitten at night by spiders. Um, well, I don't know whether you, you have been bitten at night. I mean, there are Maybe I'm making it up. Yeah. <laughs> there are several spiders that can bite in this country. Um, there are a couple that live mostly in the south of England that are moderately venomous. And even the big house spiders can bite, um, particularly if you annoyed them. Um, and in fact, one of the house spiders we have in this country has been accidentally imported into the western seaboard of the USA, where it's uh, spread further and further north year by year and it's known as the hobo spider because it, it catches lifts on trains uh, <laughs> and now it's reached Alaska where it's not very nice for it to live out of doors it lives in houses all the time uh, and it is quite a venomous spider there are lots and lots of websites looking at hobo spiders and the, the way they attack people and, and things like that how, Do you know roughly how many of these sort of spiders get shipped in every year in bunches of bananas? Oh, ones into this country it's mm. probably thousands but most of them don't survive 
because um, it's too cold or yeah, nothing I mean, to eat. Or? They, they come on chilled ships or, or chilled aeroplanes and therefore it's, it's too cold for them. But some of them do creep through and the ones that we get are, are mostly widow spiders. Black uh, widow spiders? Yeah. So they're, they're lethal, aren't they? Uh, well, only if you're sort of under five or you've got a weak heart or you're relatively elderly. Mostly they'll just make you feel really awful for about 24 to 48 hours. What actually is it in the venom of a spider that, that makes those symptoms? Well, widow spiders have what's known as a neurotoxic venom, which is one that attacks the central nervous system, so it gives you shakes and tremors and vomiting and things like that. Some of the other spiders have a, what's known as a cytolytic venom, things like uh, the brown recluse spider, which again sometimes is imported, and, and that one uh, causes tissue to break down, so you get a really nasty sort of gangrenous reaction. Ooh, my God. Sounds horrible. How, how aggressive are insects generally? I mean, we all know that you shouldn't, you know, annoy a wasp because it will come and sting you. Are there any really aggressive insects in the world? Well, I would say probably bees are worse. <laughs> Much more aggressive <laughs> than anything wasps? else. Surely wasps Bee, what do you more... think about that? No, wasps are really quite docile. Maybe apart from the Asiatic hornet. Well, I'm sure William would know more than I would about the... The Africanised killer bees. I mean, I think that of the domestic bees, they, they vary hugely. I mean, you can get all kinds of different bees who are specially bred for different temperaments. And I don't know, beekeepers become very fond of their bees. And I don't think they'd like to hear them being accused of being aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> is it true, um, Ian, that when you blow smoke into a beehive, it does actually calm them down? Is, is that actually genuinely how it works? Oh, yeah, they, they're, they're naturally... Their, their response to a forest fire is to engorge on, on their honey so that they can then move out and save some of their food reserves. So if you blow the smoke in, they think it's a forest fire and they fill themselves up and they get a bit dopey and drunk, so to speak. Um, so that's why they're much more less likely to be aggressive. So it's like us having had a massive Sunday lunch, you just want to slou slouch in the armchair. <laughs> Pretty much so, yes. <laughs> Harriet is on the line. Hello, Harriet. Hello. How are you? Fine, thank you. Where are you calling from? Cornwall. You're calling from Cornwall? <laughs> yes. How are you listening to the programme in Cornwall? We're not. Oh, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> How, are you normally a listener? Yeah. Are you on holiday? Yeah. Because it's half term. <laughs> ah, right. Where are you at school normally then? All Saints. All Saints. Where's that? In March, Cambridgeshire. Oh, right. So you normally listen on BBC Radio Cambridgeshire. Okay. What's your question? Why does the flu jab only last one year? Oh, well, that's a fantastic question. It's quite useful because we were talking about flu earlier, weren't we? Um, yes, the flu is a nasty virus. And the genetic material of the flu tends to make mistakes when it copies itself. So when the flu infects a person, the flu virus that that person then makes and passes on to a second person looks a little bit different than the one that you are infected with because some mistakes are made when it copies itself. And as this happens, because the flu goes round the world, it takes a year to go right the way around the earth and come back to where it started. By the time it comes home again, it looks very different than the version that was here the year before. And because your immune system is trained to home in on and recognise things very, very efficiently and very, very quickly, it can't recognise it the second time because it looks totally different. It's the same virus, but it looks a bit different. It's like you going and having a facelift and looking very different because you've dyed your hair and your face looks a different shape, but underneath you're still you. 
and that's what happens with the flu virus and so the body can't recognize it so quickly and so as a result you're not immune to it and the vaccine is made from the flu that was going around last year so the vaccine's only good until the flu changes so you have to keep it up to date and have a new one each year does that help yeah. Cool. Now, do you want to have a quick go at winning yourself an ant farm, Harriet? Woohoo! Yeah. All right. Here we go then. Glass comes from volcanoes. Is that science fact or science fiction? Is it science fact? You're absolutely Ray. right. You're in the lead so far. Yes, you can find examples of natural glass in volcanoes. It's called obsidian. It's that lovely sort of natural shiny glass stone. Okay. Next question, Harriet. You're doing very well. You're in the lead. Duck-billed platypuses are the only mammals in the world that lay eggs. Is that fact or fiction? Fiction. What do you think? Do you, what do you think other ones do then? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. Storming ahead. Yes. Um. There's another antipodean mammal called the echidna or spiny anteater, and that also lays eggs. And these are also in the same sort of group, the same kind of family of mammals as platypuses. These are monotremes. You're doing really well. You've got two out of three so far, Harriet. Ready? Yep. Rhinoceros's horns are made of highly compacted hair. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Science fact. Oh, I wanted that ant farm. Damn it. <laughs> um, yes, rhino horns are in fact made of the same stuff as hooves and hair. So they're hair strands, hair-like strands of protein that are compacted really hard together and form a very tough bone-like material. Brilliant, Harriet. Three out of three. Excellent. All right. Yes. Well done, a great question too. It's great having you on the programme. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye. Harriet there, with three out of three in our competition. Up for grabs tonight, we have an Encyclopaedia Britannica and we also have an ant farm, which you can get from sciencesleuth.co.uk. If you want to have a go at winning it, 08459 25 2000. Any science questions, but we are talking this evening about the science of insects and that kind of thing. You can email me as well, chris at nakedscientist.com. Let's have a quick chat to Sarah, who's in Cambridge. Hello, Sarah. Hello. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Are you on half term? Yeah. Where are you at school? All Saints. Oh, same place as, um, where is it? Harriet? Yeah. Oh, right. So you must have been talking about science at school this week then? Yeah. What's your favourite bit of science? Um, I don't know really. I like it all. Do you? Brilliant. Yeah. Do you think you want to be a scientist when you, when you leave school? All right. Yeah, go for it. It's brilliant. <laughs> What's your question? Why do insects have more legs than humans? That sounds like a sort of Ian come William question. William, what do you think the answer is? I think if, if you're a small animal, it's quite hard to not fall over. And if you have only two legs, maybe you're going to fall over. So you need a sort of large number of legs to make sure you can stay on the ground all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a reasonable answer, doesn't it, Sarah? Yeah. Do you want to have a go at the quiz? Um, yes, please. The spleen is an organ in your abdomen that helps with digestion. Is that science fact or science fiction? No, bad luck. The spleen is a, a fist-sized organ on the left side of your of your tummy. It doesn't help you to digest food. It's actually involved in your immune system to protect you against illness and fight off infections. You can vent it if you're angry as well. Vent your spleen. Now, you've got to get the next one right, OK? OK. A blink lasts approximately 0.3 seconds. Fact or fiction? Yep, you're absolutely right. And if you drive at 60 miles an hour and blink, you'll be driving 10 metres blind. <laughs> Scary. You're doing very well now. OK, one out of two. Next question. Fish hear through their bodies. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? That? No idea. <laughs> say the first one again. <laughs> um, say, the, say the first answer again. That? 
yay! Yes, most fish have two inner ears with no direct connection to their external environment. Uh, the fish ear contains bony structures called otoliths covered in tiny hairs and the, the, uh, the motion of the fish in the water and the motion in the otoliths stimulates their hairs and they interpret that as sound. I think we have otoliths, don't we, that are involved in our balance? Absolutely right. We have, we have them our ears. Well done, you got two out of three. Very good. What are you after? Are you after an Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD or are you <laughs> after an ant farm? Encyclopedia. Okay, we'll put you down on the list and uh, hopefully if, if, if no one else wants that one, you can have that one, okay? Okay. All right then, thanks for your call. Thanks, bye. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat here with you until seven. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a question to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Cat, until, here until seven, we're talking the science of insects on BBC Local Radio in the Eastern Counties, 08459 25 2000. Right now, we're going to link up with Megan Fredrickson, who is in the US, in California, from Stanford University, who's been doing some interesting work in the Amazon. Hello, Megan. Hi, Chris. Good evening. And good evening to you, too. Now, tell us about your story. Well... I've been studying a phenomenon called the Devil's Garden. That sounds scary. What's a Devil's Garden? A Devil's Garden is a very unusual kind of grove of trees that grows in the Amazon. And Devil's Gardens are very unusual because in these groves of trees, there is only one or at most a few species of trees. Yeah. Which is very strange for the rainforest because usually in the rainforest there are hundreds of species of trees growing in a very small area. So, so how big are these gardens actually, if you, if you look at the largest of them, how big do they get? They get to be about uh, 1,300 square metres, which is about half the size of a soccer field, or I guess you guys would say a football field. Wow. So, that, so that's, that's pretty big, to have just one area of just one type of tree. What, what sorts of things were going through your mind when you were thinking what was causing this? Well, um... Uh, there were basically two ideas about how it is that Devil's Gardens are formed and how it is that there's only one kind of tree that grows in Devil's Gardens. And the first idea uh, proposed that maybe the tree that grows in Devil's Gardens produces some kind of uh, toxic chemical substance from its root. That kills that, everything else off. Exactly, that seeps into the soil, kills everything else off, and prevents other trees from growing in the area. How did you prove that wasn't the case then? Well, I, um, I did an experiment, um, and uh, what I did is I planted um, a bunch of saplings of a very common Amazonian tree species, a kind of cedar, and I planted them inside and outside um, Devil's Garden. So this is a different tree species to what's normally in a Devil's Garden? That's correct, a different kind of tree species. And don't tell me, they all died. Um, <laughs> no, actually, they didn't. Um, when I planted them inside Devil's Gardens, I did two things. Um, I planted them inside Devil's Gardens just as is, and then I also planted some inside Devil's Gardens with a kind of sticky uh, goo wrapped around the base of the trunk to prevent insects from climbing up the trunk and getting at the leaves. Right, and which ones survived? And only the trees that um, didn't have this, uh, this sticky substance around the trunk um, died after a couple of days in Devil's Garden. So some kind of insect was attacking them. Exactly. So I showed that some kind of insect um, was attacking the trees uh, in Devil's Gardens. Actually, all trees except for the species of trees that, that grows in Devil's Gardens. And what was that insect then? Well, it turns out that that insect is a species of ant. So these ants are selectively homing in on trees they don't want and killing them. That's correct. How are they doing that? Um, how it is that they uh, attack trees in Devil's Gardens turns out to be something really, really fascinating. 
the ants, when they're attacking trees in devil's gardens that they don't want to grow there, what they do is they start by crawling up the trunk of the tree, and then each worker ant bites a small hole in, in the leaf tissue or in the stem tissue with its mandibles, with its, um, jaws, its yeah. jaws. And then it flips its abdomen underneath its body. The abdomen of the ant, it's like it's, it's, like its belly. Yeah. And it sticks the tip of its belly in the hole that it's made, and it releases a few drops of a very, very nasty chemical substance called formic acid. And this just poisons the tree? It poisons the tree. But how do the ants know one tree species from another? Because they're not known for their intellect, necessarily, are they ants? So how do they, how do they know which trees to kill and which ones to leave alone? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, so the tree species that they, that they leave alone, that they don't kill, the, that is the tree species that grows in the Devil's Gardens, it turns out that it has um, a very special relationship with the ants. The ants live in the hollow... Uh, stems of this tree species. That's right. the tree species they use to make their their nests. Right. Um, and I thought for a while that maybe the ants uh, choose whether or not to attack um, a tree in a devil's garden by um, by first evaluating whether or not the tree could provide any nesting sites for them, whether it has these hollow stems yeah. for them to nest in. And I did another experiment, and it turned out that um, that's not true. Uh, so ants- what do you think actually going, how do the ants actually, because we are a little bit tight for time, how do you think the ants actually home in on the right kind of trees to allow to survive and, and home in on those ones they want to kill? My best guess is that they distinguish between the tree that they live in and all the other trees which they kill using some kind of chemical cue. Uh, they so- basically smell the difference between these kinds of trees. So it's like recognising your favourite food by the smell of it. Exactly. Can I just ask really quickly, why are they called Devil's Gardens? It's a fascinating name. They're called Devil's Gardens after an Amazonian legend. Um, and this Amazonian legend tells it that these gardens are actually cultivated by an evil forest spirit. So that's how they get their name. Uh, brilliant. Thanks very much, Megan. Well, thank you for bringing us up to speed on that. It's a wonderful piece of work. Very thank interesting. You. Cool. Thank you, Megan. All right, my pleasure. Good to have you on the show. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Megan Fredrickson from Stanford University in California with a wonderful story about how these ants actually cultivate a forest and exclude every other kind of tree apart from the, just the one they want to nest in. And we're not talking a small area of forest either, we're talking something the size of a football field. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris and Dr Kat, here with you until 7. If you'd like to ask us a science question, 08459 25 2000. We're talking this evening about the science of insects. And here on the show with us, uh, one, one of our guests is B Wilson, who has a book out that's... Uh, just recently called The Hive and it's all about our relationship with one of our best friends because I love honey and uh, in fact she's going to be talking in Borders Bookstore tomorrow evening at 8 if you'd like to come along it's completely free and will suit anybody and everyone can't promise you any honey but you can have a cup of tea we're calling it A Potted History of Bees and Honey Bee, welcome to the show Thank you so what first interested you in bees and what, what do you find most fascinating about them? Well, I have to admit, I love honey as well and I am a food writer and there is, I, have to, I mean, it sounds very silly, someone called Bee writing a book about bees and I have to admit that's part of it. When I was a child, I always used to be given little presents with sort of Winnie the Pooh and honey on or something. And at a certain point, I suddenly realised not everyone being given these bee things is actually called bee Um, and therefore I realized there was a huge sentimentality out there about bees that I don't think we feel about any other insect we certainly don't feel it about wasps or ants 
Um, and that got me very interested. Then when I became, grew up and became a historian, I discovered that we used to think and still think all kinds of weird, passionate things about bees, which again, I don't think apply to other insects. They are fascinating animals, the sort of the bumblebee idea. Because um, we've heard how insects can be really useful. But can you talk a bit about honey? I mean, do, does honey actually have any useful properties? It does. It tastes good, doesn't it? Well, well apart from tasting good. It tastes delicious and therefore it makes us feel good. Um, I mean, it is a sugar, but it is probably a tiny bit better for you than refined sugar um, because it has a slightly different composition of fructose and glucose in it than refined sugars. But, I mean, it's basically still sugar, so if you're diabetic, you shouldn't eat too much of it. Um, but, I mean, over the years, all kinds of claims have been made on behalf of honey. People have said it could cure baldness if you smeared it on top of your head <laughs> or that it could make your... Um, well, it certainly make your head sticky, so the hair's not <laughs> yes. going to fall out, is it? Well, exactly. I mean, people believed it would cure infertility, all kinds of things, and a lot of that's rubbish. But it turns out there are some things that it can do, and it's been used for years as a wound dressing. And there are scientists in New Zealand, particularly, who are working on that, and it, particularly with this honey called manuka honey, which comes from a tree which is the same as what we call tea tree. Um, and it genuinely has been proved to have higher antibacterial properties than other honeys. And does, it really does work. Does it have the chemicals from the tree in the honey? Because you get different types of honey, don't you? Like heather honey and things. And they smell You do, different. and they smell different. They have different textures. Heather honey is amazing. I love heather honey, especially from Scotland. And yes, because it's it's called thixotropic which means it has the same consistency as non-drip paint <laughs> and yes I mean, it's all to do with the different chemical makeup of different nectars okay we've got a question now from marion hello marion hello how are you yes right thank you thank you for joining us on on the naked scientists on bbc local radio in the eastern counties i hope you're having a very pleasant evening yes yes thank you and you want to know about bees um, well, specifically um, about this substance that they produce called propolis, because um, I read an article a while back um, which was written by a beekeeper, and one of the properties in this article said that um, propolis is good for the immune system. Now, my husband has um, rheumatoid arthritis, Hmm. which I don't know if the lady that to do with bees knows, but this rheumatoid arthritis yeah. specifically attacks the immune system. Now, I'm wondering if taking propolis would be any good in this respect. Well, the, in fact, rheumatoid arthritis is the immune system attacking joint tissue when it shouldn't do. Yes. So it is, yes, the immune system kind of going out of control a bit. Are you aware of this, Ian? Or I mean, I do know that it, all kinds of claims have <coughs> been made for it. I've had completely delicious cough mixtures made with propolis in it i don't think it would do him any harm at all whether it would do him any good i couldn't really say i mean there have been many claims made but they haven't really been substantiated i don't think with scientific fact but that's not to say it's not true marion do you want to have a quick go at the quiz uh, yes i will yes. okay here we go the gas you breathe out is called carbon monoxide is that fact or fiction um no, bad luck. You breathe out carbon dioxide. Carbon monoxide is the poisonous one produced by car engines and dodgy gas fittings. OK, Marion. We've got to get the next one right, OK? Mm -hmm. OK, here we go. Jupiter has a beautiful system of rings around it. Science fact or science fiction? Fact. Ah, no, bad luck tonight. No, it's Saturn that's the one with the rings, oh, and yes. you can see them with a the telescope if you've yeah. got a good one. I'll tell you what, it was a very nice question, Marion, so okay. I'll give you another go, all right? <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Air is mostly nitrogen. Science fact or science fiction? Uh, fiction. 
Oh, one more Sorry, chance, you blew it. Yeah, air is mostly nitrogen, 80% of it, oxygen's 20%, and the rest is all, you know, bits and bobs, argon, neon, carbon dioxide. Right. No luck. honey in the air, unfortunately, but okay. you can call it a honeymoon. Maybe jam tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marion, for your call. Thank you, bye. Dr Chris and Dr Kat, as the Naked Scientist, here with you until 7 on BBC Local Radio across the east of England. If you'd like to ask us a question, 08459 25 2000. We're talking to... B. Wilson, all about her book, The Hive. We're talking to Ian Burgess from Insect Research and Development in Cambridge, who's an expert on all kinds of insects and how they spread diseases and that kind of thing, and William Foster from Zoology in Cambridge. William, most people are probably fascinated to see how organised ants and bee colonies are. How do they actually talk to each other and decide who does what? Well, I think this shows that actually ants do have a big intellect. I and mean, you said earlier on that these uh, wasp things can be trained. So insects do have massive brains and they can do all sorts of things. They organise their colonies by a system of chemicals, which essentially which the, they release to each other, and that is a way of keeping in touch with what's happening to the colony. For example, if the queen starts to fail in most insect colonies, then the, the workers can pick this up and react accordingly because they don't smell her so much. When you say fail, you mean what she gets old and gets yeah, she gets old and weak decrepit. and uh, yeah, and, and isn't so sort of able to pump out babies for them all, and they pick that up and then um, could do something about it, like producing new individuals, new reproductive. But, but how does how do ants say get told today you're going to go off and find food, and your job is to go out and find food and then come back and tell everyone where it is so they can go and find food? How's that achieved? Well, I think it's a sort of um, a stable system, they're all, um, let's say they're starting, they're all feeding, and then if suddenly more food comes, then more of them will go out and come back, and they'll all get agitated, and individually that will in- encourage them to go out and get more. So it's very simple rules that they're following all the time, nothing very complicated. So if if they come back um, and they're full of food, then all the other ants will pick that up and go out and follow them. How do they know where to go? Because you see them kind of marching in a line around the edge of the kitchen or something, well, my kitchen. Um, how, what are they following? Well, in, it varies, but in many ants there is a trail which they leave, a, a, again, a sort of chemical smell which they smear on the ground. Then all the ants kind of follow that. You can see where they've been. Can you get rid of it? Because can you rub it to get rid of it? Yeah, yeah, yes. If you you sort of brush it away, then maybe they won't go there. Sometimes the ants actually do it individually. They're looking at the the sun or landmarks, and they don't need a chemical trail. So if you did that, if you brushed in that case, it wouldn't make any difference. Ah. They could still see. So you'd have to have the right kind of species if you're doing your brushing. Right. Because I was reading the other day about bees, and they have a, a sort of a pecking order in the hive, don't they? And some bees um, are bees that are in charge of just doing housekeeping duties. They're kind of confined to barracks, and then as they mature, they're allowed out to go and collect things. Um, how is that actually achieved? How do they decide when they have become old enough to get more responsible duties, if you like, in a beehive? Well, the general idea is that as you get older, if you're a, a bee you get uh, to do different things. So you start doing things near the queen, which is where you're maybe born originally, and you help the queen. If certainly it's true if you're an ant. You'll help the queen, you'll sort of move eggs and things. And as you get older, you move further and further away from the centre of the hive, and then eventually, towards the end of your life, you do risky things. <laughs> it would be a bad idea if, when you were a young bee or whatever, you went out foraging and defending straight oaks, you're liable to die. So it's only when you're quite old you go out and fight. The opposite to what we do with humans, of course, we send young people out to fight. Uh, but it's not just bees and ants that are social in this way, is it? Because some spiders do similar things, don't they? Yes, there are a lot of social uh, insects. Spiders, I mean, they're only just social. You don't get kind of worker spiders, as far as I know, which don't reproduce. I think the real test of sociality is, is there a, a group of individuals which are sterile, which do not reproduce. 
Aphids are like that, rather surprisingly. So there are some aphids, green fly, which are permanently sterile and just kind of fight and don't do anything else. I know a few people in my college from medical school days who are a bit like that. Who are permanently sterile. I'm just (laughs) falling out and fought all the time. Let's talk to Bargev, who's on the line. Hello, Bargev. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Yep. We're going to have to be very quick because we're very short of time. What was your question? Um, what is the most powerful insect, like, that flies the longest? What, what insect can fly the longest? That sounds like a sort of Ian Burgess t- type question. Flies the longest? In a single stretch, probably I should think it's a dragonfly. And these animals spend most of their life on the wing and they just come down to, to settle, to look, to see where the prey is. Um, but they can fly for quite long periods. But um, there are many insects that have been found several hundred miles off of a coast. So uh, lots of things can fly for long distances if they get caught by the wind. Actually, I think probably the one that flies furthest on its own steam is the little biting black flies that you get in West Africa. And they can do 300 kilometres That's in not looking bad. for prey. And, and the know. most famous migrating insect is the monarch butterfly, which flies across North America to special roosting sites in, in mm. Mexico and so on. That's a very famous, uh, powerfully flying, migrating butterfly. I bet you didn't think it was going to be 300 miles, did you, Bargav? No. Or even further. That's quite impressive for something so small as an insect, isn't it? Yeah. I'm afraid we don't have time for you to have a go at the quiz. All right, right, but it was a really great question. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you one quick question. If you get it right, okay, then we'll give you a copy of B's book, all right? We're going to have to answer it very quick. Owls are the most intelligent of the birds. Fact or fiction? Um, fiction. You're right, they're stupid. They are, actually, because most of their head, Bargav, is actually taken up with their eyes. Owls, despite the fact everyone thinks they're really clever, they're actually really thick. Well done, you've won yourself a copy of B's book. Okay, Thanks for joining us. See you later. Great question. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. You are, of course, listening to The Naked Scientist Podcast, which is freely available from thenakedscientist.com website. We're very grateful to Anne Gray from sciencesleuth.co.uk, who donated this week's prize. More fun and frolics available from her website, sciencesleuth.co.uk. The other big prize on tonight's show was the 2006 Encyclopedia Britannica DVD, which was kindly donated by Band and Brown Communications. Don't worry if you didn't win it this week, as there'll be one up for grabs on every single show until Christmas time. So if you want to have a go at winning it, just send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com, with your questions. Now, another reason to drop me a line is to take part in a new feature for The Naked Scientist, because we want your science podcasts to include in our podcast and our science radio show. The guy who's going to be sorting it all out with Petro's podcast picks is Naked Scientist producer Petro Minch. Petro, what are you looking for? Well, Chris, we're looking for, obviously, science-based podcasts, and we're offering podcast listeners the chance of their podcast being included in our podcast, which I think is a first. So we'd like podcasts maximum length of one and a half minutes. If it's any longer, we will listen to it, but obviously, depending on how many we get, it might take a while. And obviously, we want them to be preferably funny, and they have to be something scientific. So if you're going somewhere exciting that's scientifically relevant to the top of a volcano or perhaps to the bottom of the ocean, get recording and then send it to us. Chris at NakedScientist.com. Petro will have a listen to it, and the best ones will make it not only into the Naked Scientist podcast, but onto the Naked Scientist live science radio show each week. So get recording now and send them to Chris at NakedScientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. 
next week. Very spooky UFO special. We'll be going live to Rendlesham Forest with Anna Lacey to find out about what happened back in 1980. And also we want your UFO stories. Thank you very much to the production team at The Naked Scientist. Thank you Ian Burgess, William Foster and B. Wilson. And we'll see you at the same time next week for a UFO special. Good night. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.